This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. A state of emergency was declared for Ontario on Tuesday of this past week, along with a stay-at-home order, which took effect on Thursday. Many Ontario residents have been asking, what, if anything, is restricted in this new reality that wasn't already restricted in the lockdown? The answer seems to be not much, other than slightly reduced hours for big box stores and alcohol retailers, along with extended virtual learning until at least February 10th in the COVID-19 hotspots. This is probably even more true in Brampton, where so many residents are essential workers, living paycheck to paycheck, often with precarious part-time employment. And many of them are reluctant to take sick time if they don't feel well, because they don't get paid, increasing the risk of potentially spreading COVID-19. Libby Snymer was joined on Wednesday by Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca and Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown to discuss. Well, they have changed the operating hours of some uh, businesses that are still allowed to be open from 7 to 8 p.m., and they've also changed gathering limits. If you're outdoors with people, you can, before it was you could be um, gathering with 10 people. For example, 10 people gathered together on a toboggan hill. Now now the limit's um, five. And so the social gatherings have been curtailed even uh, further. Um, so, you know, some of these provisions are, are helpful. But what I've been arguing is, you know, this is really tinkering around the edges. The, the, the two big things that we needed were isolation centers and paid sick days, and the Premier gave us an approval to have isolation centres, which will now be open starting next week. Oh, um, good. And, Congratulations. Uh, and our hope now is that the second part of this uh, important tool, will, paid sick days, will, will hopefully come soon too. Bottom line on this, your take on this package introduced yesterday? It's a step in the right direction, um, but it really is tinkering around the edges. Um, if you wanted to make a more meaningful impact in COVID transmission, um, I, I think you really need to focus on things like paid sick days. And joining me now, Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. What is your general reaction to the measures that were introduced yesterday? I would say that I, you know, it's a combination of both being disappointed and also, frankly, a little bit fed up with. Um, what seems to me to be like a bit of a game, and I hate to use that terminology for such a serious situation, that Doug Ford and his team continue to play with the people of Ontario. And what I mean by that is this notion that there are always these large gaps or, or delays in time between him warning that things are going badly, um, you know, trying to scare people well in advance, days in advance, but then the decision and the announcement about new measures lagging badly. We saw this before Christmas. We saw it even again last week up until yesterday. And then when the announcement's made after we're told by the premier that, you know, how hard he's worked and how late he stayed up and how long his cabinet meeting took place, notwithstanding all of the advice that's coming from public health leaders, I think internally, but certainly externally, or mayors like your previous guest, Patrick Brown and others, 
Um, what what ultimately gets announced is weak, and it's not going to get the job done. And it's got huge gaps in it, huge things missing, like sick days. Sick, uh, sick days. Is that sick in, is that in your opinion the worst gap? Now, I think there are I think there are two or three gaps. So I would say the overall gap or deficit that Doug Ford's got is that there's a real lack of decisiveness or clarity coming from him. This has been true for many, many months to get a little bit more specific in the midst of where we are right now. I think paid sick leave is like there's just no excuse at this point. I don't know of a single voice that's actually said it's a bad idea. Uh, again, municipal leaders, opposition party leaders, most importantly, public health leaders are saying, screaming at the government, uh, it's got to get done. Uh, I literally watched Patrick Brown speak this morning, uh, giving his update, and he said he's, he's imploring Doug Ford to get this done, as are others. And it, it strikes me now that it's become less about the less about the policy and more about the ideology. There is something that is preventing Doug Ford from moving in this direction. It's completely mind boggling to me. A couple of other really quick ones. I don't think there should be a carve out for big box stores the way that it is. I think any non-essential goods that they're trying to sell, they shouldn't be selling at this point. It's a fairness issue for sure, but it's also a public health issue. There's no good reason for someone to be standing in a big box store buying something that's not essential when we're dealing with the lockdown. Lastly, I don't know why he doesn't pick, Doug Ford doesn't pick up the phone, call in the Canadian Armed Forces again. We clearly still need help in our nursing homes. We clearly still need help with getting the vaccine rolled out. So those are the gaps that I saw yesterday. What we saw yesterday, the incoherent and mixed messaging and confusing messaging coming from Doug Ford and his ministers does nothing to help most Ontarians understand what the heck they have to do. And so how, when you combine that with an uneven, arbitrary approach to the enforcement by law officers, law enforcement, not really understanding what they're supposed to do. It is, it's just about the worst way imaginable to try to navigate the remainder of this pandemic. And I, again, I just, I know I'm a partisan guy and I'm leading an opposition party, but Doug Ford's demonstrating increasingly he is not up to this job. Stephen Del Duca, leader of the Ontario Liberal Party and Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The reason for these enhanced emergency stay-at-home measures is because our healthcare system is in danger of being overwhelmed. A quarter of our ICUs are already full. Another 25% have only one or two beds left. And elective procedures, including cancer surgeries, are being cancelled. Libby asked Dr. Michael Warner, Medical Director of Critical Care at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital, whether the new restrictions will have a positive impact on bringing down the daily COVID-19 numbers. No, I don't think they're going to make a tremendous difference, actually, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, I think the measures that were announced are inherently contradictory in that you know, there's a alleged stay-at-home order, but non-essential businesses are open 13 hours a day. I assume the people who work at those non-essential businesses to provide the curbside pickup services for people who aren't supposed to leave their homes are somehow deemed essential because they'll have to leave their homes to, you know, work at those non-essential businesses. Uh, you're supposed to stay at home, but outdoor gatherings are allowed up to five people. I don't think the public really understands what the government's trying to do uh, with these measures, and there's no incremental benefits or protections for essential workers, especially those in factories, fulfillment centers, manufacturing facilities, to allow them to stay home while they're sick, while they're waiting for their COVID test results, uh, so they can protect themselves and their families. So this definitely falls short, and I think more measures will be required for sure. 
We were talking to Mayor Patrick Brown earlier, and he says he believes that is the single most important measure, and that is to get some paid sick days for these really essential workers. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, this is this is not news. This is something people have been saying for months, uh, that if you are an essential worker, you get paid hourly, you have no benefits, you can't zoom into work, you have rent to pay at the end of the month, and you have a sore throat, uh, you're going to work because you can't even take a day off to get a test because you won't be paid, which means your family won't eat. I mean, it, it's very simple. And those of us who do have the luxury of being able to work from home can't really relate to that, but that's the way many people live, and they have no safety net. And we all benefit by protecting those in those vulnerable jobs. And in terms of the overall cost to the government, granted the provincial government is trying to, I guess, ask the feds to do this, but they really should just pony up the cash because the overall cost is a rounding error when you consider the amount of money they're spending in in totality to get us through this. It's also the right thing to do because it'll stop people from dying. We perennially see patients in our ICU who acquire COVID-19 from other people in their household who are essential workers or it's the essential workers themselves who are in our ICU. It is a fundamental problem, especially in Peel Region, which is home to many of these fulfillment centers and uh, factories. What's your message to people? Well, I mean, I think the government has, has essentially put this back in the hands of the public saying, you know, if you only listened, if you just do what we say. But I think it's clear from the data that People need rules, and those re- rules need to be clear. Enforcement I'm not going to get into, but I guess for some people, enforcement will serve as a deterrent. But if we look at the mobility data, Libby, you know, they announced a lockdown on December 21st that wasn't implemented until December 26th. I mean, that's absurd. Yeah. Of course people are going to move around. Of course they're going to shop. Of course they're going to see it as a license to congregate if the premier isn't taking this seriously. And the, you know, the stay-at-home order is a stay-at-home order in name only because it's, you know, stay at home if you can and you don't need to go to a non-essential business to pick up a pair of shoes. I mean, there's, there's no limits on mobility. There's no limits on the number of times you can leave your house. Uh, there's no, you know, geographic boundaries where you're not supposed to go. And, you know, to me, this is beyond civil liberties. I'm not, you know, this is a healthcare crisis that's looming. And they will for sure have to implement more severe restrictions. But the longer they wait for a definitive lockdown, the longer the lockdown will be, the more people that will die, and and the more fatigue people will get with all this. So uh, it was far from a bold move yesterday. I think it was a half measure, and it was consistent with what we've seen so far from this government. Dr. Michael Warner, Medical Director of Critical Care at Toronto's Michael Guerin Hospital. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, how police officers are being directed to enforce the new stay-at-home order. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. When Premier Doug Ford announced the new stay-at-home order this past week, people were initially left wondering, how will it be enforced? We soon learned that local and provincial police and bylaw officers are empowered to enforce the order. But does that mean they may randomly stop people and ask what they're doing out? 
Are they being directed to break up crowds? And what about issuing fines? Libby Snymer asked this of Joe Couto, Director of Government Relations and Communications for the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. These are very complex uh, things, complex changes. And uh, yesterday in our office, we had a lot of calls, not only from media, but just concerned citizens asking, like, how, how should I conduct my, my life uh, to ensure that you, they comply with, with the law, but also to help ensure that COVID numbers come down. Uh, to your question, though, the, the main questions we've had are the ones you just asked. Uh, should they be worried about walking down the street, driving their cars, uh, that uh, that police officers are going to knock on the doors and come into private residences? And I can uh, I can assure you that uh, none of those things are uh, are going to happen under the emergency orders. What are they going to do? Um, The restriction has been to five people outside. I can tell you that walking along, uh, certainly last weekend, I know of one neighborhood where uh, large crowds of people actually being very aggressive, blocking a whole street, Mm -hmm. not letting people out of their driveways. What about a situation like that? Uh, while we highly discourage uh, people from uh, doing any of that, what you just described, I mean, these are difficult times. We're all obviously, um, you know, under significant uh, mental strains because of, of, of COVID. Um, in terms of what our police officers uh, are going to do or not going to do, I think what you're going to see is police officers are going to be much more proactive, more intentional, if I can call it that, in terms of particularly when it comes to things uh, like crowds. Uh, the rules are very clear, uh, and as much as we uh, appreciate and protect the the, the right of, of, of people, for instance, to have peaceful protests, um, uh, the emergency orders that have come down make it very clear that when you're outside, uh, there cannot be more uh, than five people gathered in one place. So we're going to be much more intentional about that. We're going to be proactive uh, when it comes to large gatherings, and, and it could be just, you know, friends in, in the park. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, near where I live, uh, there's a park that is very popular with a certain group of, of uh, a young men who like to play soccer, uh, and they, they play it even in the winter. Um, well, they have at least 20 people that come out to these games. Well, that won't be allowed. Uh, we're going to be much, pro- much more proactive because we know that we will be getting calls because people are going to be much more um, uh, aware of the rules. And we know we're going to be getting calls uh, for a situation like that. Our officers will come. And um, we're going to be much more intentional in terms of fines uh, for people like that. Um, and so what we're hoping is that people will understand this and, and abide by the rules so we can get out of these uh, situations quicker. Is this uh, really making it hard uh, to enforce the regular things that are out there all the time? We're, we're really confident that, you know, we're still dealing with all the other types of crime uh, that uh, normally we would be doing if we're not in a pandemic. Um, and, and that's why it's really important for, for people to understand the stay-at-home orders are for, uh, for our safety, not only health-wise, but to also, um, you know, crack down on things like uh, um, break-and-enters. If you're in your home, you're much less likely to be a victim of a break-and-enter than if you're out of the home, it's dark, and people see that as a target, for instance. How much are these fines? The fines themselves uh, are, are basically if you, um, if you fail to, to comply uh, with an order, um, 
Uh, the ticket is $750. Um, and if you fail to comply with an order from a police uh, officer or bylaw officer or any other uh, peace officer or you're in obstructing um, those uh, those uh, law enforcement personnel, uh, you could face a fine of up to uh, $1,000. Uh, very serious uh, crimes uh, or, or very serious infractions, I should say, um, do even carry uh, up to uh, a year in, in prison for very serious uh, uh, infractions, um, which might be something like organizing, uh, you know, a social gathering that is obviously very, very serious in terms of a potential spread of, of the COVID virus. Joe Kuto, Director of Government Relations and Communications for the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As of early this past week, only 8,000 of more than 122,000 COVID-19 vaccine doses administered in the province had gone to long-term care residents. Former General Rick Hillier, who's in charge of the vaccine rollout, keeps promising to do better. But according to healthcare professionals, his order to prioritize speed above all else is part of the problem. The governing Ford PCs say long-term care residents in so-called hot zones will be vaccinated by this coming Wednesday, and care homes in the rest of the province will be completed by February 15th. There is another issue around vaccinating nursing home residents. It's been flagged by the Ontario Medical Association. Doctors are facing a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork in their efforts to vaccinate residents of long-term care. It's another reason why one leading gerontologist called the rollout in LTC a gong show. Joining Libby on Thursday for a discussion on the long-term care vaccination process, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, professor at Ontario Tech University, who specializes in family caregiving and is an advocate for those in long-term care facilities, and Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association. We know that long-term care homes are having active outbreaks and over 40% of them have. And the best solution we have right now is about vaccines. Unfortunately, those vaccines take two weeks till they have 80% effectiveness and over a month until they get over the 90% effectiveness range. We've lost our runway. Any runway that we had over the spring is now gone. Now we need to do things now quickly in order to protect our elderly. We've already seen over a thousand deaths in long-term care and the projections put us well above 2000 by mid-February when we can think to have everyone vaccinated, not necessarily fully protected, but vaccinated. So we're looking to the government to help us help patients. And it's simply that simple. We don't want to see any more avoidable deaths. We know that some of the people who are dying in long-term care centers are not dying from COVID per se. They're dying from a lack of resources. Frankly, they are dying from dehydration. They are dying from a lack of oxygen. They are preventable deaths. And Dr. Liao said it the other day on our presser very, very well. She's a palliative care physician. She said, it's time to stop making people comfortable and start preventing the preventable deaths. Okay, Dr. Stamatopoulos, what's your view on this? Oh, I completely agree with um, with the doctor, of course. Uh, we did miss our, our runway, so to speak. I like, I like the way you put that. Um, and the fact that, you know, we, we are promising that we'll get to all of them within, what, the next uh, month plus is just not good enough. I um, Given the rollout so far, I have very little 
confidence that they'll actually meet that objective that they just mentioned the other day. Um, and uh, it's just really sad because at this point, I'm, I'm just hearing constantly, of, you know, accounts of neglect, accounts of dehydration, malnutrition, and just preventable deaths that shouldn't happen because of, you know, the ongoing understaffing that was a problem before the pandemic and only exacerbated during the pandemic, especially in these homes with exploding outbreaks. I mean, I posted the statistics earlier today that were courtesy of uh, the Ontario Healthcare Coalition, but we have some homes with 200 plus cases. I mean, we have dozens upon dozens of staff sick at home isolating who is filling in for them to provide this care. And then you wonder why we have residents dying from completely preventable causes. I mean, it's horrifying. You know, even if we meet the current expectation of vaccinating everyone by mid-February, that potentially puts us at an extra 1,500 deaths. And that's if we meet those expectations if we meet that projection. So we need to improve our vaccination. The biggest challenge to that, frankly, I don't think is about who is doing the vaccination right now. Obviously, family doctors need to have a bigger role in this. They know their patients. They know how to do this. They have been vaccinating for eons. But the real big problem about vaccination is the supply. And frankly, credit where credit's due, that's not under the provincial government's control at the moment. The other challenge, though, is about getting people in to help. And that is a fundamental challenge. Mm-hmm. Red tape is preventing physicians from moving rapidly into long-term care. It's also preventing nurses and PSWs. We do not have enough people. We do not have enough hands at the bedside. Prior yep. to COVID, one physician could take care of an entire long-term care house because most people were well. They just needed help. When people start getting sick, each of those patients takes up more physician time and you require more physicians in that space. You also require more nurses and more personal support workers to help them with their activities of daily living and all of their medical needs. We absolutely need help in these centers. We need oversight and we need help. I am not particularly um, partisan about where that help comes from. If the military is the easiest and fastest way to get that help in, then let's use it. If there are other ways, that is fine too. But we need more boots on the ground taking care of our most vulnerable. That was Libby's conversation on Thursday with Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association, and long-term care advocate, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Edie in Toronto says she isn't buying the emergency messaging from Premier Doug Ford. When I heard Doug Ford and those empty epithets of, uh, I can't even think of all of them. I just wanted to just vomit. We don't have the vaccines. We were having millions. What happened? I, I just, it's so wrong. Everything has been so wrong. And the older people are, are just the worst off from this. Murray and Malton called to say he thinks individual responsibility has wavered when it comes to reducing the spread of COVID-19. What I see is 
and I personally did this too, okay, October and November, I figured those people that worked in long-term care would be more responsible with what they're doing and stay away from people and everything. But I think Doug Ford is still doing that, relying on us to pull the weight, which we should be, but nobody is. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who says there is a need for paid sick days, especially during the pandemic. And he reminded us of Premier Ford's philosophy on legislated paid time off due to sickness. I'm very confused, as many people are. Um, The whole messaging around these changes, if there are any, is still very confusing. But specifically with respect to the sick days, I would point out uh, that the uh, Wynne government had proposed, we're bringing in changes to the Employment Standards Act, which included two paid sick days for all employees. And among the things that Doug Ford did when he came to power, in addition to to, uh, cutting the uh, proposed minimum wage to $15, is he also eliminated the two paid sick days. He's ideologically opposed to providing that benefit. And with respect to the federal government, I understand that the Ford government is still sitting on a pile of cash that the the federal government has flowed to them to deal with the pandemic. And he's not... He's demonstrated whether it's long-term care, education, he is not wanting to spend any money. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416 367 9636. 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.